It's great to be here. Uh, nice to see everybody here this morning on a, on a bright, sunny Saturday morning. Finally, we got a bright Saturday morning. <laughs> uh, I want to just give you a, a little background how I got to this message. Uh, as you know, uh, many years ago I did the the Old Testament chronology, and that's the handout we have over there that gives you the timeline of the Old Testament. And I said, why? And it's always been in the back of my mind to do one for the New Testament. And uh, I said, okay, I need to learn a few things because I want to not only do the New Testament, but I also want to do the extra-biblical documentation that verifies the Bible. Because I've always heard that there's more history documenting the resurrection of Christ than any other ancient event in history. It's the most attested, and I wanted to find out what that evidence was. And so I, in the last two months since I volunteered to teach this month, I've been on a quest to figure all that out. And I went through basically three books to... Uh, to figure out how to present and what to do. And the, the, the task got bigger than uh, I could accomplish in the time that we had as far as getting this all down nice and succinct on one piece of paper. So you're going to get some handouts here with lots of information on it in a minute. But uh, I read three books. One was Cold Case Christianity by J.W. Wallace, who was here for one of the equipped conferences. And he's got the, the detective way of going through the evidence and, and using... What's a reasonable explanation for the evidence that we have, using it from a legalistic mind or a detective's mind? Anybody can throw out there any theory of anything, but is it probable? Is it reasonable? And that's a good way of, of going through that. Uh, another book that I read, and that's the one that the, this, um, you actually ended up uh, focusing on. I, I bought a hard copy and I forgot to bring it. It's The Case for the Resurrection. And I highly encourage you all to get this book by uh, Gary Habermas and Mike Laconi. And uh, Gary Habermas has really uh, refined this technique, which we're going to go through, on going through the evidence for the resurrection. And then the other book is Philip Schaff, who wrote The History of Christianity. It's an eight-volume masterpiece that he, he wrote in the 1800s. And there's a volume to each section of history. And I read the first two volumes, which gets us up to 300 A.D. And there is, unbelievably, overwhelming evidence. What we're going to look at today, though, is the history that we can gather from history uh, by studying the documents of people that have written about Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, that's what we're going to focus on today. The things that we're not going to focus on today is one is archaeology. But one thing I'm going to pass around while I'm talking is we actually own a piece of archaeology here at the church, and some of you have already seen it, but this is the, the widow's mite. This is an actual widow's mite from 2,000 years ago. And the story of the widow's mite, it was minted about 100 years before Christ was born, and uh, this is an actual piece of archaeology that says some of the stuff that the Bible talks about really did exist, a widow's mite, was real and existed, and there's a lot of confirmation in archaeology that we're not going to go through today. So uh, with that, I want to pass out these. There's two, there's two handouts. 
and uh, there's, there should be plenty if anybody wants to take extra for, for friends. Um, feel free to take extras. I, I left a few more up here if you need some more. While they're being handed out, if you could turn to your Bibles to 1 John 1. Uh, Mario uh, uh, quoted this in his uh, invite to today. You know, uh, Steve's been teaching the last couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians uh, what Paul's message was to the Corinthian church. You know, I, wanna, I want you to know Christ and Him crucified. That's the central theme of Christianity, Christ and Him crucified. And, and that's the most important thing we want to help unbelieving people is to understand who Christ was and Him crucified and why He was crucified. And we have the testimony of the New Testament uh, Gospels that tell us why they wanted us to know these things. And so let's read in 1 John 1, 1 there, that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is telling us he is an eyewitness of the risen Lord. He touched him. He saw him after he was risen, after he was crucified, after he came out of the tomb. John, an apostle of Christ, I give you my sworn testimony that I saw the risen Lord. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And that's the thing. Do we believe the testimony of the New Testament apostles, the Gospels? And the passage that is quoted the most that we will hear the most about in my presentation uh, if we turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The Resurrection of Christ by Paul writing to the Corinthians. More testimony about what was seen by the New Testament writers. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. What Paul is saying there, I received this well before I'm writing this. He wrote this in 55 AD. 
So he's saying, I'm delivering to you what I have heard. So this testimony that he is now ready to start quoting here in verse 3 is younger than 55 A.D. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I was persecuted, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then I was or there, so we preach, and so you believed. So this is the testimony of the New Testament. That they saw the risen Lord. They touched the risen Lord. They walked with the risen Lord. They ate with the risen Lord. They saw the risen Lord come through walls to meet with them. And uh, we're not going to go through all the evidence of the New Testament itself. We're going to spend most of our time outside of the New Testament. So you understand the historicity. And what was amazing to me going through this journey was learning how much, you know, we know most of Paul's epistles was correcting errors in the, in the churches of Ephesus and Corinth and the Thessalonians, etc. Well, that battle continued after the New Testament. The, the, church, the apostolic fathers, the people that knew the apostles, their letters were to correct errors in the church as well going forward. It, it's, and it's been a constant battle ever since. We know that. There's a lot of corrupt churches still in today. So it's a constant battle that's been there since day one. And because of that, the apostolic fathers wrote a lot of evidence that we have. So that's an important thing to understand, that the battle for the truth continues. And you also, now, now I understand why, you know, there's all these other books they say should be maybe in the Bible. Why aren't they in the Bible? Because they're not authored by the apostles, which is the truth that came, it was handed down and inspired by the Holy Spirit using the apostles as their instruments to write it down for God. And they were saying, that is not inspired scripture. Maybe whatever agrees with scripture is definitely good, but when it disagrees, then you know it's definitely not part of, uh, you know, it's not inspired uh, writing from God. You know, anything, any of us that gets up and talks to you guys, we have to be like the Bereans and say, does it match with scripture? You know, you never take anything from anybody uh, on faith alone, always check with the New Testament. Now, I want to give you a, an illustration, though, that something will be very important here as we go forward. What's the difference between faith and knowledge? If I uh, pull out a coin here out of my pocket, and I tell you it's a quarter, and you know me, I'm a good guy, I'm a Christian, I wouldn't lie to you, I have a quarter in my hand. And you can go out and tell everybody, hey, Dave held up a quarter in his hand. And you're telling everybody that by faith. 
You don't know I have a quarter in my hand. You haven't seen it, but you're taking my testimony that I have a quarter in my hand. So that's belief. That's faith. And that's what we have. We don't have first-hand testimony. We didn't see the risen Lord. And we're going by faith based on the testimony of the New Testament prophets, or New Testament apostles. If I open my hand, I don't have a quarter, but if I had a quarter in my hand and you saw the quarter, you now have the truth. You see it. And this is what the New Testament apostles said. They have seen the truth. They have seen the risen Lord. And that's the difference between knowledge and faith or belief. So that's something that I want you to understand. Now, one of the things that people throw out against the Bible is it was written many years ago, it was embellished, uh, it was a made-up story, it's an invented religion. Well, one of the things that's important to understand is the timeline uh, of the Bible, and I want to go to the back of the handout, uh, uh, the last page of this detailed handout, it's got all the text on it. Uh, you have when the New Testament books were written. And you can see there were very, the first book of the Bible uh, that was written was the book of James between the years 44 and 49 A.D. is the best that historians can guess from, the evidence that we have. That's when James was written. And the last book of the Bible, Revelation, was written in the years of the guesstimating between 94 and 96 A.D. So the New Testament was written very well before the, during the apostles' lives, which knew Jesus Christ. If I wanted to write a book about, I'm going back to my 50th high school class reunion this summer. I could write a book about my time in high school. And that's 50 years ago. So these guys are, you know, John is writing in 94, going back to 30 AD when he saw the risen Lord and walked with him. That's 64 years. He can do that. He's got the memory to do that. And he's inspired by God who's going to help him remember some things that maybe he couldn't remember but it's his testimony that he saw the risen lord now you turn to the back page and you have a timeline of when events happened in the bible in the new testament so you have a little bit of a timeline there so you can see time wise when things happened when was paul's missionaries uh when were his trips uh you can see here and it's also important to know who was the emperor because when you see these writers write they will refer who was the emperor of rome at the time and that's how we can kind of figure out when things have happened, when they, uh, they uh, bracket it by who the emperor was. Now, on the page before the one about the book of the New Testament, you see the, the, the stuff in color? These are the apostolic fathers. And these are approximate dates. It, it's, it's hard to get exact dates when these guys lived, but these are approximate dates. They're mostly, I, I took them, you know, I said, okay, I'll just go to go to Wikipedia and say, what the dates did they have? So these are actually dates out of Wikipedia. So you could say secular people say this is when the apostolic fathers lived. And you look at the first two there, Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch. Look how close, born in 35 AD. They had first-hand testimony from the apostles. They knew the apostles. Clement of Rome, and the Catholic Church calls him a pope, and Ignatius of Antioch walked and talked with the apostles. And so did Polycarp. He walked and talked with John. And he got taught by Ignatius. 
there is this uh, letter of Barnabas or epistle of Barnabas that you hear about. That's one of the books that people say should belong in the Bible. Uh, and you can see uh, that's pretty early. Uh, they don't have a birth date for him, but uh, they say he died in around 61 A.D. And then you can see the rest of them. And what we're doing is we're concentrating on all the historical evidence before the Nicene uh, Council in 325 A.D. So we were going to be looking at all the historical evidence that is younger than 325 A.D. or older than 325 A.D., depending on which way you want to go timeline-wise. So that's what we're going to cover. So I wanted to give you that background and uh, those timelines. So as we go through the, the five facts of Christianity's uh, Christ's resurrection, and this is what's called the minimal facts. And this is what Gary Habermas has coined this this technique uh, or this uh, line of reasoning, not technique, but line of reasoning. And the line of reasoning goes like, let's just look at these five facts, what he calls the minimal facts. And you get out of the arguments about, well, what about this contradiction or that contradiction that atheists like to throw out about the Bible? To them, are there apparent contradictions? They can all be explained. Or uh, uh, do you have to believe in the five points of Calvin or the five solas? Or do you have to believe uh, in pre-trib, post-trib, amillennials, pre-millennials, post-millennials? Uh, do we have to believe in 6,000 years, uh, the, the earth is 6,000? You, you sidestep all those type of things and you just, hey, let's look at if Christ died and was raised from the dead, there must be a God. That's the only reasonable explanation there is. And it's the only reasonable explanation that explains these five historical documented events that we're going to go through. And I'm going to show you how documented these five historical events are. Any opposing theory has to explain these five historical facts. If they can't explain them, that opposing theory is thrown out. And here's the five uh, historical facts. And you can go through either one. The, this is kind of a minimalistic outline that's graphical. And then the other one's a little bit more detailed uh, that goes in a little bit more detail. So the outlines are the same. One has more detail than the other. So the five facts. Jesus' death by crucifixion. Did Jesus die by crucifixion? That'll be number f one, the first fact that we'll establish. Did the disciples believe he rose from the dead? Was Paul truly converted? We know he was an enemy of Christianity. And, you know, we see his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. Now, we won't spend a lot of time in Scripture today to go through the biblical evidence. We're going to talk about stuff, uh, evidence outside of the Bible. And then the conversion of the skeptic. James, we saw, was a skeptic. They thought maybe Jesus was a little bit... Uh, uh, off the wagon, if you will, and they were trying to rescue him, his family, and get him back, you know, because he's out there preaching, and they're wondering, like, is my brother, my half-brother, my oldest half-brother a nutcase or what? He was a skeptic. He didn't know, and he wasn't a believer until he was converted. That's fact number four. Now, the reason is four plus one. Those four facts, almost 100% agreement that it is history by Christian historians and secular historians. Secular historians believe this historical evidence. 
Number five, the empty tomb, about 75% of the secular historians believe it's true. So it's almost, you know, unanimous that it's, you know, by my majority, empty tomb is considered uh, historical evidence as well. That's why I call it four plus one. So uh, let's get to Jesus' death by crucifixion. Crucifixion was a common form of execution employed by the Romans to punish members of the lower class, slaves, soldiers, the violent, rebellious, and those accused of treason. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, reports that during the fall of Jerusalem, in, uh, it, by the way, Josephus was born in 35. He was like the Clement of Rome about the same age bracket. So he's very close in time. Uh, and Josephus uh, died in 100 AD. So to give you an idea, when Josephus writing, this is very current. He's getting information handed down from him from very various sources. The Roman soldiers felt such hatred towards the Jews that they crucified a multitude of them in various postures. Crucifixion was a very torturous death in the first century. Cicero calls it the most horrendous torture. So hideous was the act of crucifixion upon a man that he also writes that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. So when we get down to the, the four or five testimonies or evidence of the crucifixion, and you can follow that. I actually have it in the detailed text. I have these quotes written out for you. I think it's below the, uh, let's see, where is that? Yeah, it's below the timeline of the, uh, of the Apostolic Fathers. You'll see the evidence for the crucifixion. Josephus writes, and this is just a, a snippet of what he wrote, just talking about Jesus Christ crucified. When Pilate, so we know when it happened, during Pilate's r rule as, a, as the prefector at, uh, in Judea, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him, Jesus, to be crucified. That's Joseph's documentation in the book of Antiquities that he wrote. Chapter 18, verse 3 is the way they documented it. Tacitus, another person who wrote the Annals of History in, 15, in his, his book, Annals, 1544. Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class, on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, I'm not saying that right, procurators, Pontius Pilate. So we know from Tacitus that during the time of Tiberius, Jesus Christ was crucified. 
Lucian, the Christians you know, the Christians you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So we have another secular documentation that Lucian says Christ was crucified. And Mar Bar Serpian, who wrote this from a, a prison, we don't know much about him, but this actual letter is located in the British Museum. You can go there and see it. Or what advantage came to the Jews by the murder of their wise king, seeing that from that very time their kingdom was driven away from them? And what he's referring to there is when James was the apostle, uh, not the apostle James, but James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred in 62 A.D. Rome came in 66 A.D., laid siege to Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple by 70 A.D. And they say that was a punishment for killing James. And that's what he's referring to. So the Jews, uh, so what advantage came to the Jews for murdering their wise king, seeing that from that very time the kingdom was driven away from them. So they're talking about they're being penalized for crucifying the Christ. They're being penalized for, for uh, the martyrdom of James. And in 70 AD, they paid the ultimate price. So what advantage was it to them to kill their king? <coughs> Although Mara does not mention crucifixion as the mode of Jesus' execution, he does say he was killed. The Talmud, which comes a little bit later in time that we don't really use because of the later date and time, like 200 A.D., uh, reports that on the eve of the Passover, Jesus was hanged. Jesus, or Joshua in Hebrew, the equivalent is, in Greek is Jesus there, or Jesus, being hung on a tree was used to describe the crucifixion in antiquity. So he said he was hung on a tree. So clearly, Jesus' death by crucifixion is a historical fact supported by considerable evidence, not just the evidence of secular history, but the evidence that we see in the New Testament itself. So the next part in the history is, did disciples believe Jesus rose from the dead? There's virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection, that subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples believed that he appeared to them, risen from the dead. This conclusion can be reached by data that suggests that the disciples themselves claimed that the risen Jesus had appeared to them, and subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him on his arrest and execution to bold proclaimers of the gospel of the risen Lord. They remained steadfast in the face of imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. It is very clear that they sincerely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Using our minimal facts approach, this is the author talking, there is no need to defend the proposition that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the four Gospels while discussing Jesus' resurrection. Instead, we're going to look at the number of ancient sources that will lead us to our conclusion regarding the belief of the disciples. But the scriptural references are there in, in the detailed handout, so you can read that for yourself. And uh, hopefully uh, you're, you're well aware of that. So they claimed it. The disciples claimed, claimed it. First, Jesus' disciples claimed he rose from the dead and appeared to them. 
This conclusion can be reached from nine early independent sources that fall into three categories, and we use the acronym POW. Paul, the testimony of Paul about the disciples, the oral tradition that passed through the early church, oral tradition for the O, and W, written works of the early church. Paul provides very strong evidence for establishing the resurrection claims of the original disciples. He claimed that his own authority in the church was equal to that of the other apostles. The authority was acknowledged by a number of apostolic fathers soon after the completion of the New Testament. Two of those early writers may have been disciples of, apostles, of the apostles. Paul reported that he knew at least some of the other disciples, even the big three, Peter, James, and John. Acts reports that disciples and Paul knew and fellowshiped with one another. We even see a time when Paul rebuked Peter when he came up. Uh, was that in uh, Damascus or uh, Antioch? And uh, about uh, eating with these Jews with uh, this food versus not eating. And before that, he was okay. And he rebuked him. So there is interaction that we see in the New Testament. Other early Christian writers within 100 years of Jesus also seemed to hold that the disciples and Paul were colleagues since they included Paul in the group called apostles. Therefore, what we have to say concerning the other apostle, what, what he, Paul has to say concerning the other apostles is very important. So Paul said the disciples claimed Jesus rose is one of the earliest and most important quotes in Paul's first letter that was written in 55 AD, which we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. Since tape recorders were unavailable in the first century, recorded dialogues such as sermons of Jesus and his apostles had to have been summaries prepared after the fact by those who heard them. Most sermons last longer than five minutes, but most sermons we can read in the Bible are about five minutes long. It takes to read them. For these reasons and others, most scholars agree that many of the sermons and acts contain oral summaries included in the text that can be traced to the earliest teachings of the church and possibly to the disciples and themselves. Now, these are the, the authors of the book talking. We say possibly uh, to the disciples because we are considering only what we can argue from our minimal facts approach, not because we doubt the testimony of Luke. So again, 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 2, 1 through 10, we can read uh, about Paul. But now we get down to what did the apostolic fathers say about Paul? Clement, the bishop of Rome, and he lived from about 30 to 100 AD, may have been the Clement to whom Paul referred to in Philippians 4, 3, but we can't confirm it. We do have a letter that we know Clement wrote to the church of Corinth in the year 95. Around 185, though, the early church father Arrhenius, Arrhenius gives us some background behind the information that's in that letter. He wrote, Clement was allotted the bishopric, bishopric, this man as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have been preaching of the apostles still echoing in their traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone, for there were many still remaining who had received instructions from the apostles. In the time of this, Clement, no small dissensions having occurred among the brothers at Corinth, 
the church of Rome dispatched a most powerful letter to the Corinthians. And this is what I was talking about earlier. They're still correcting errors that they see in the church, these apostolic fathers. And he just almost said what Paul said. You know, I, you know many were still remaining who received instruction of the apostle. What did Paul say? 500 people saw the risen Lord, and many of them were still alive. Around 200, the African church leader Tertullian wrote, For this is the manner in which the apostolic churches transmit their registers, as the church of Smyrna, which records that Polycarp was placed therein by John, and also the church of Rome, which makes Clement to have been ordained in the manner by Peter. So Clement has been the apostles, had seen the apostles, and had fellowship with them, particularly Peter. This would render great historical value to Clement's writings concerning the apostles and their teachings. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Clement writes, Therefore, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and believing in the word of God, they went with the Holy Spirit's certainty, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is about to come. So he's confirming the the apostles in their teaching. Arrhenius also reported information regarding Polycarp, who lived from about 69 to 155, but Polycarp also was not, was not only instructed by apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also by apostles in Asia appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, whom I also saw in my early youth, for he tarried on earth a very long time. And when a very old man, gloriously and most nobly suffering martyrdom, departed his life, having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles. Arrhenius states that Polycarp was taught by the apostles, taught others that he had learned from them, appointed as the apostle of bishop to the church of Smyrna, and had talked with many who had seen Jesus. Arrhenius also makes mention of Polycarp in a letter to Florinus, which is now lost but fortunately preserved by the early church historian Eusebius of of Caesarea. Eusebius was the appointed historian of the Christian church by Constantine, who became the emperor uh, in around 300 AD. So, Polycarp is writing to Florinius. When I, Polycarp, was still a boy, I saw you, Florinius, in Lower Asia. No, Arrhenius is writing. When I, Arrhenius, saw a boy... Still a boy, I saw you in a lower Asia with Polycarp. He saw Florinius with Polycarp. When you had a high status at the imperial court and wanted to gain his favor. I remember events from those days more clearly than those that happened recently. So that I can even picture the place where the blessed Polycarp sat and conversed, his comings and goings, his character, his personal appearance, his discourses to the crowds, and how he reported his discussions with John and others who had seen the Lord. He recalled their very words, what they reported about the Lord and his miracles and his teachings, things that Polycarp had heard directly from eyewitnesses of the word of life and reported in full harmony with the scripture. Furthermore, Tertullian wrote that the Apostle John appointed Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred in Smyrna around the year 160 at the age of 86.
around 110, he wrote a letter to the Philippian church speaking about the righteousness and endurance witnessed in the lives of several, including, quote, Paul himself and the other apostles. Of them, he says, for they did not love their present age, but whom him who died for our benefit and for our sake was raised by God. In fact, Polycarp mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ five times in his letter to the Church of the Philippians. Ignatius also provides early confirmation, but he cannot be directly tied to the apostles. Ignatius was a bishop of the Church of Antioch in Syria. Syria. He did know Polycarp and wrote a letter to him while en route to his execution in Rome in about 110 A.D., Since the apostles trained Polycarp, Ignatius is certain to have been well acquainted with the apostolic teachings. In addition to his letter to Polycarp, Ignatius wrote letters to six churches. These have been of immense value in revealing the beliefs of the early church. In his letter to the church at Smyrna, Ignatius writes that the disciples were so encouraged by seeing and touching the risen Jesus that they too despised death, and that after their resurrection, he, Jesus, ate and drank with them like one who is composed of flesh. In that same letter, he writes, Do pay attention, however, to the prophets, and especially to the Gospels, in which the passion has been made clear to us, and the resurrection has been accomplished. In his letter to the Philadelphians, Ignatius writes concerning the Gospel, which, which of course was the center of the Christian preaching, but the gospel possesses something distinctive, namely the coming of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, and the resurrection. In his letter to the Magnesians, he writes, I want to forewarn you not to get snagged on the hooks of worthless opinions, but instead to be fully convinced about the birth and the suffering and the resurrection which took place during the time of the governorship of Pontius Pilate. These things were truly and most assuredly done by Jesus Christ. Polycarp had been taught and appointed by the apostles. His statements concerning Jesus' resurrection can be linked to these apostles since as their central teaching, it makes the most sense that they could have wanted to preserve it above all other doctrines. The nine sources in these three categories above point to multiple very early and eyewitness testimonies to the disciples' claims of witnessing the risen Jesus. If someone challenges you to establish that the original disciples really made the claim that the risen Jesus had appeared to them, you might respond with the following. That's a great question. Let me give you three categories of evidence. First, we have Paul, who claims to have known and fellowship with the disciples firsthand. He says that they said it. Second, we know of some very early oral tradition that was circulating within the church before the New Testament was even written and points to the disciples saying it. Third, we have written tradition that portrays or assumes the disciples saying that Jesus had appeared to them after he rose from the dead. In all, we have nine independent sources. So you can see why there is virtually unanimous consensus among scholars today who hold that Jesus' original disciples said that he appeared to them risen from the dead. And if you go look at under uh, 
uh, oral tradition on the bottom of the first page of this text. You can see here, how do we know it's a creed? Uh, if we go back real quick, you know, the, uh, Paul said it was given to him. It contains indicators of Aramaic, Aram, Aramaic origin, the fourfold use of the word hoti, H-O-T-I, is common in creeds. That's the word that. That Jesus was crucified. That he was risen from the dead. You know, that, you know, we keep reading that this happened, that this happened, that this happened. Tells you it's in a creedal form. Cephas. You know, I always wondered, why did Paul say Cephas here? Because he was repeating the creed which was in Aramaic for Peter. But Paul wrote in Greek, so that's another indication that this was the actual creed itself. And it contains parallelisms, which is also part of a creed, and it has non-Pauline terms, like Cephas. When's the origin of this creed? Very soon after Jesus' crucifixion. Most people say probably within five years of the crucifixion when this happened. Uh, as we know, the crucifixion was in about A.D. 30. Paul's conversion guesstimated between 31 and 33 A.D. Uh, Paul went away for three years after his conversion, then visits Peter and James in Jerusalem. Most scholars believe that Paul received the creed from them at that time. The other option is that he received it in Damascus at conversion, which would have been three years earlier. Either way, he probably received it within two to five years of Jesus' crucifixion, which places the origin of the creed even earlier, from someone whom he as an apostle deemed to be a trustworthy source. The very latest dating of the creed would be prior to A.D. 51, since Paul writes that he had received and he delivered them while visiting Corinth, which vi scholars said he, he visited in A.D. 51. So Paul had the creedal information prior to that time and received it still earlier from a source considered trustworthy. Then we have the extra biblical, uh, we have Paul's quotes uh, in 1 Corinthians 15.33 and Titus. Then we have evidence that demonstrate that the creed prior to Paul's writing was not originated by him, as, as we noted. And important, important points to note about the creed. It's early testimony of Jesus' resurrection, probably eyewitness te testimony to Jesus' resurrection, multiple testimonies to Jesus' resurrection, Cephas, Cephas, Peter, the Twelve, more than 500 at one time, James, and to all the apostles, and then to Paul. The post-resurrection appearances, the Twelve, the 500 plus, and all the apostles. The sermon summaries, they're in Acts 1 through 5, 10, 13, and 17. These are early testimonies as well, within 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion. Important points to remember about these summaries of these sermons in Acts, the early testimony of Jesus' resurrection, possibly eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection, and the group appearances that we see in Acts 10 and 13. And then when we look at the written tra tradition, all four Gospels, regardless of critics, skepticism concerning the Gospels, contain multiple claims by di disciples written within 70 years of Jesus that Jesus rose from the dead. And those were from the Clement, Clement of Rome and Polycarp. 
and the Clement of Rome, the letter we had, 95 AD, and Polycarp, the writing was in 110 AD. So we have very early testimony from the apostolic fathers. So the last point, they believed it. Clement of Rome mentioned earlier reports, the sufferings and probably the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. Clement wrote, Because of envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars have been persecuted. And two, but many afflictions and having borne witness went to the due glorious place. Because of envy and rivalries, steadfast Paul pointed to the prize. Seven times chained, exiled, stoned, having become a preacher both in the East and in the West, he received honor fitting of his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world unto the boundary on which sun sets, having testified in the presence of the leaders. Thus he was freed from the world and went to the holy place. He became a great example of steadfastness. Polycarp, in the above-cited letter to the church in Philippi, mentioned the unlimited endurance of the, the church had seen in Ignatius, Zosimus, Rufus, and the Apostle Paul, and the rest of the apostles, among others. He added, They are in the place, do them with the Lord, in associating with him. Also they suffered together, for they did not love the present age. Through Polycarp, we know that Paul, other apostles, and other believers suffered for their faith. Polycarp himself would follow their example of strength and conviction in the face of martyrdom. Ignatius was bishop of the church in Antioch in Syria. While en route to his martyrdom in Rome, about 110, he wrote seven letters to the six churches and one to his friend, colleague Polycarp, which we already mentioned. Since the apostles trained Polycarp, Ignatius is certain to have been well acquainted with the apostolic teachings. He Ignatius recorded the willingness of the disciples to suffer for their beliefs. In his letter to the church in Smyrna, where Polycarp was bishop, he wrote, And when Jesus came to those with Peter and said to them, Take, handle me, take, handle me, and see that I am not a bodiless demon. And immediately they handled him and believed, having known his flesh and blood. Because of this, they also despised death, but beyond death they were found. Ignatius said that having seen the risen Jesus, the disciples were so encouraged they also despised death, as had their master. The Greek word for despised is better translated cared nothing for or disregarded. Not only did they act in a manner that they thought little of dying, but Ignatius adds that beyond death they were found. Most likely referring to their attitude toward death being proved or demonstrated by their own boldness when the moment of execution actually came. Even if Ignatius' comments doesn't refer to their moment of death, he at least means that the disciples were so strengthened by seeing the the risen Jesus that they preached without thought for their earthly fates because they knew that immortality awaited them. Tertullian was an early church father who wrote just prior to 200. He reports the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. That Paul is beheaded has been written in their own blood. And if a heretic wishes his confidence to rest on public record, the archives of the empire will speak as would the stones of Jerusalem. We read in the lives of the Caesars. At Rome, Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then is Peter girt by another when he is made fast to the cross. Then does Paul obtain a birth suited to Roman citizenship when 
in Rome, he springs to life again ennobled by martyrdom. And he's referring to Paul being beheaded because that's the, the death that a Roman citizen would get. He wouldn't get crucifixion. According to Tertullian, if one did not want to believe in the Christian records concerning the martyrdoms of such, some of the apostles, they could find that information in the public records, namely the lives of the Caesars. Tertullian says that Peter was crucified and Paul was beheaded under Nero, who was the first emperor to execute Christians. Since Nero was emperor between A.D. 54 and 68, we know that Peter and Paul must have been martyred within that period. It is more probable that the martyrdoms occurred closer to 64 than to, than to 68. In that year, Rome was burned. According to the early 2nd century Roman historian Tacitus, when the people blamed Nero for the fire, Nero turned the blame on the Christians and began a horrible persecution, persecution killing them brutally. The text reads, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, pro I still can't say that word right, Pontius Pilate, and most mischievous superstitions, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their death, covered with skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his garden for the spectacles and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people and dressed as a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserve extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to the glut of one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. That's an anti-Christian reporting, what happened to the Christians. It should be noted that most scholars accept this passage that I just read as authentic. Origen, another church father, many of his works are still available to us, but some have been lost. In one of his writings, he relates how the disciples' devotion to the teaching of Jesus was attended with a danger to human life, and that they themselves were the first to manifest this regard for its death terrors. A few chapters later, Origen writes, Jesus, who has both once himself risen himself and led his disciples to believe his, in his resurrection and so thoroughly persuaded them of its truth that they show to all men by their sufferings how they are able to laugh at all the troubles of life, beholding the life eternal and the resurrection clearly dis demonstrated to them both in word and deed. Another of Origen's writings relates that Peter had been crucified upside down and that Paul had been martyred in Rome under Nero. Origen's commentary on Genesis uh, work has been lost, but is cited by Eusebius in his e e e 
ecclesiastical history of the church. Crucifying victims upside down or positions other than upright was mentioned by Seneca. Seneca lived from about 4 BC to about 60 AD, 70 AD, 72 AD, I think it was. And so very current information confirming that people were crucified upside down. And Josephus also testified to that. So a recent study by critical historians concluded with likelihood that Peter was executed between 64 and 68 by Nero. Eusebius is called the first church historian, having just come out of a severe persecution against the Christians. He wrote the history of the church, and he compiles the history up until the time of the writing about 325 A.D. Eusebius has had at his disposal a wealth of resources, many of which have been lost. For the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul, he cites Dionysus of Corinth, I'm not sure I got that pronounced right, which was written about 170. Tertullian writing about 200 and Origen writing between 230 and 250. He cites Josephus who wrote in 95, Hegespus writing in 165 and 175, and Clement of Alexandria who wrote in about 200 AD on the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus. The disciples' willingness to suffer and die for their beliefs indicates that they certainly regarded those beliefs as true. The case is strong that they did willfully lie about they, they did not willfully lie about the appearances of Jesus risen Jesus. Liars make poor martyrs. No one questions the sincerity of the Muslim terrorists who blow themselves up in public places or the Buddhist monks who burn themselves alive as political protests. Extreme acts do not validate the truth of their beliefs, but the willingness to die indicates that they regarded their beliefs as true. And this has come back to my quarter example. Moreover, there is an important difference between the apostles' martyrs and those who die for their beliefs today. Modern martyrs act solely out of trust in beliefs that others taught them. The apostles died for holding to their own testimony that they had personally seen the Jesus, the risen Jesus. Contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. Disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be true. In all, at least seven early sources testified that the original disciples willingly suffered in defense of their beliefs. If we include the sufferings and the martyrdoms of Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, we have nine sources. Luke is one, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Ignatius, Dionysus of Corinth, Tertullian, and Origen, and plus Paul and James. Notice what happens when we consider the fact of the disciples' claims and beliefs that they had actually seen the risen Jesus. Since the original disciples were making the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection was not the result of myth-making. His life story was not embellished over time if the facts can be traced to the original witnesses. Moreover, if the direct witnesses really believe that he rose from the dead, we can dismiss the contentions that the body was stolen, which was a made-up story. In fact, virtually all scholars agree on that point, whatever their theological positions. So we'll, we'll, uh, I'll let you read the rest of the uh, detailed text there. I want to just real touch on the persecution of Paul. Thus, Paul's notorious pre-Christian activities and conversion are multiply attested to, as we've already read. 
we have the testimony of Luke and Acts and uh, the stories circulating among the Christians in Galatia. Uh, we also have Paul's own testimony in, in the early church fathers, which we talked about, is documented by the Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, the same ones, Dionysus of Corinth, and Origen. Therefore, we have early multiple first-hand testimonies that Paul was converted by primary evidence, not secondary evidence. Knowledge, truth, not because he saw the risen Lord himself too. And then looking at quickly at James, I'm, I'm shortening things here due to time. The Gospels report that Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, plus unnamed sisters. Joseph, the Jewish historian from the first century, mentions the brothers of Jesus who called the Christ whose name was James. And, you know, I read in church a couple Sundays ago about how James was martyred. And that's repeated here by the historian Hegesus, which is where Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox, got that information that I read to you a couple Sundays ago. So the gospel report that Jesus' brothers, including James, were unbelieving during his ministry. The ancient creedal material that we read in 1 Corinthians says he appeared, James, uh, Jesus appeared to James. And subsequent to the alleged event of Jesus' resurrection, James identified as a leader of the Jerusalem church, which we see in Acts and Galatians. Not only did James convert to Christianity, his beliefs in Jesus and his resurrection was strong that he died a martyr, as I pointed out. It was attested by Josephus, Hegespus, Clement of Alexandria. We no longer have any of the works of Hegespus uh, or the writings of Clement, but they are recorded for us by Eusebius. Therefore, his martyrdom is attested by both Christians and non-Christian sources. Last but not least, the empty tomb. As I mentioned, about 75% of the people there. Uh, We have the Jerusalem factor. If the tomb wasn't empty, all they had to do was produce a body and killed the whole story right from the beginning. It would have been impossible for Christianity to have taken off from Jerusalem if the body had still been in the tomb. Enemy attestation. The empty tomb attested not only to the Christian sources, Jesus' enemies admitted it as well, albeit indirectly. Hence, we are not employing an argument from silence rather than a point to an occupied tomb. Early critics accused Jesus' disciples of stealing the body. We have that from Justin, Martyr, Trifo, Tertullian, not just from the book of Matthew. There would have been no need for an attempt to account for a missing body if the body had still been in the tomb. When the boy tells, you, tells his teacher that the dog ate his homework, this is an indirect admission that the homework is unavailable for assessment. Likewise, the earliest Jewish claim regarding the Jesus' resurrection was to accuse the disciples of stealing the body is an indirect admission that the body was unavailable for public display. This is the only early opposing theory we know of that was offered by Jesus' enemy. And then last but not least, in the testimony of women, just to cut time short, it's been taught many times, you know, women were held of low regard. They weren't allowed to give testimony in the court system there. And and you could say by the doctrine or the uh, uh, 
of, of embarrassment, if you will, uh, the case for embarrassment. You know, you don't usually write things that you're trying to make a point if it's embarrassing. And you wouldn't give testimony that the women saw the risen Lord first. You would say the men saw the risen Lord first. So it, tells, it has a sense of authenticity the way it's written. You might use the acronym JET, J-E-T, uh, remembering those act, the, the Jerusalem factor, enemy estestation, and the testimony of women, to remember those, those points. And uh, I just want to wrap up with a couple other points here in your handouts that's beyond the book that I went. I always heard this story. That eleven, all but eleven <coughs> verses, I think I heard was the the the, I think a myth, of the New Testament can be found in the New Testament writings, all but eleven verses. So I went and I looked, how much of the New Testament can be recovered without the New Testament? First, uh, in there, you have there the first listing of all the New Testament books. Christian New Testament quotes before Nicaea, uh, one council in 325 A.D. These are quotes by the Christian apostolic fathers who wrote and quoted the New Testament. And you can see it in the, in the bold print at the bottom is a summary. They quoted all the verses of the gospel, 86% of them. 54% of Paul's epistles, they, they wrote their verses. Altogether, we got 63% of the New Testament could be recovered without the New Testament itself, just by taking their quotations from their writings. We could recover 63% of the New Testament being written before 325 A.D. To me, that's mind-blowing, you know, because everybody says, oh, we got all these old records. How do you know the New Testament is real? You know, how do we know we really have the Bible? We do, you know. To me, okay, take the Bible manuscripts, that can actually that are older than 325 A.D. So these are all the Bible manuscripts that we have pieces of today before 325 A.D. In look, 88% of the Gospels are quoted, 73% of Paul is quoted, 46% of the rest of the New Testament for a total of 73% are quoted in Bible manuscripts. Turn to the next page, put the two together. We take manuscripts plus what the apostolic fathers quoted. We're up to 85% of the New Testament can be recovered from early manuscripts. That tells us that the Bible is not an inv- the New Testament is not invented, made up, myth, legend. Sorry, it took so long, guys. Uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for the preservation of your word that we have it today in the testimony, the bold testimony of the apostolic, of the apostles and the apostolic fathers, the ones who knew and the ones that believe. And as Jesus said, we are blessed for believing. Thomas knew, but we are blessed for believing. I hope with this evidence that we become bolder and brighter lights for the world and the salt of the earth. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.